Thanks, Gary. I need, uh, I need a few helpers uh, to begin this morning because we're going to play a quick game of... It's time for everyone's favorite game show, Better or Worse. Uh, so I need a few helpers. You can come up to help to hold, help me hold things. Thanks, Ezekiel. You can come up. Yes, come, come on down, Adelaide. Some more helpers. I need about four or five. How many have I got? Five. Yes, come on down, Zuri. Yes, Rosie. One more. Do you want to help? Thanks, James. All right. All right. So I've got I've got some photos of some people, and we need to decide how good they are, better or worse. Okay. Uh, so it's going to start off easier and then get harder. Okay. So what we're going to have is down this end, down we're going to have better. Okay. And down this end, we're going to put them worse. Okay. Does it make sense? Very simple. Okay. First of all, nice and easy. Here goes Ezekiel. You can take. Jesus, better or worse? Where do you think? Where do you think he goes? Yeah, you're gonna put. You don't all need to go. Just, just um, everyone else can stay here. Just take Jesus. Uh, and do you want to stand right at the front of the stage, the edge, so everyone can see? Yes. Do you want to even move further down that way? Because I think Jesus is is way better, isn't he? He should go like right up. That's it. Jesus, right down that end. Okay. Now maybe something kind of obvious, um, so we can get a good distinction to start with. Joseph Stalin. Responsible for killing possibly kind of 9 million people. Worse? You reckon worse? Okay, yep. Okay. James, you can have this one, but you need to take him down that end, okay? You're going to hold him up so everyone can see. <clears throat> That's it. So we've got Jesus down the better end, Stalin down the worse end. Okay, good. Oh, I missed one. Well, it's going to be another one. All right, it's okay. All right, the next one. It's a bit tricky, Adelaide. This guy. Where do you think he goes? Adelaide, better or worse? I don't know. You don't know? Do you think I, I, I should be with the person who killed 9 million people? No. No? Do you think I should be with Jesus? Am I as good as him? Yes. No? Where do you want to put me then? Do you want to put me somewhere in the middle? Yes. Okay, well, you can do that if you like. <laughs> All right, in the middle. Okay, what about this guy, John Bunyan? He was a he was a minister of a church like me, uh, but unlike me, he he spent twelve years in jail for the horrible crime of not attending an Anglican church, and for preaching without being authorized by the Anglican church to do it. Uh, and while he there, he wrote uh, a whole lot of books, especially the Pilgrim's Progress, which is thought to be one of the most influential books in the English language after the Bible. Uh, so, very influential Christian leader. Where do you think he goes, Rosie? Do you think he is better or worse? Do you think he's better or worse? But you hold it. Maybe other people can help you to know where to stand. Better? Better than me? Yeah? That's, that's pretty fair. <clears throat> I haven't had to... I haven't been purified. Well, <coughs> worse. I think, Rosie, I think you need to move him up a bit. Closer. <coughs> Further. 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 <coughs> All right. The last one we're going to have is the ancient nation of Israel. God's chosen precious people. Where do they go, Zuri? Do you reckon? Are they better or worse? What do you think? 
They were very precious to God. You're putting them right at the top, are you? Right at the top, up, up there. Well, Jesus was, Jesus was born as, one of, as a descendant of Israel. So uh, you're putting them right at the end. Okay, this is very interesting. Uh, we've got clearly Jesus at the top better and Stalin is at the opposite end of the scale. That makes clear sense. And then we've got me and Bunyan and Israel. Okay. Well, thank you, helpers. Uh, you can put those down over here now. Uh, and we're going to keep thinking about this, better or worse, in today's sermon. As we're reading in Judges, and we're actually up to the very last couple of chapters of Judges. The last few chapters where, where we actually have a bit of a break from the pattern that we've been seeing in Judges. You know, we've been seeing this pattern about Israel sins. They fail to live up to God's ways. They abandon him as the Lord and they follow other gods of the nations around them and bow down to idols and uh, do a whole lot of other things that are wrong. And so what does God do in the cycle? He hands them over to be judged. He uses other nations to conquer them and so that they experience hardship. They reap the fruits of their not treating him as God. And what do they do? In their suffering, we've seen them cry out to God for help again and again. They do wrong, God punishes them, they cry out, and lastly, God sends them a saviour to deliver them from their situation. Well, in these last few chapters of Judges, chapters 19 to 21, we see this pattern is, is completely thrown out. We don't see it happening. Instead, what we do see is Israel's sin. Definitely, very clearly, we see that. We see them experiencing the fruit of their sin. But we don't see them crying out to God. At this point, as we'll see, they are so far gone that they're not crying out to God for help. And God isn't, in this section, raising up a saviour to deliver them. It's just the kind of presenting to us the problem. And as we, as we look at this, we see the very first verse and the very last verse of these three chapters highlights. Uh, here we go. This is what they say. In those days, Judges 19 verse 1, in those days, Israel had no king. As we read the next one, the very last verse, 21 verse 25, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Here we see the problem. Israel's got no godly leadership, no king, no one to lead them, hold them together as a nation, no one to fight for them, no one to deliver them from their enemies. And everyone does as they see fit in their own eyes. They abandon themselves from following God and His ways and they, through their selfish mindset, their self-centered way of living and looking at the world, they do whatever they want. And that's what we see in between, in all the verses in between, 
we see Israel doing this. Living as they see fit and the, some of the consequences. And let me tell you from the start, these are possibly the blackest chapters in the Bible. They make for very difficult reading and preaching. Uh, they're probably the closest to the R-rated section of the Bible. Uh, we're not going to read all the verses, partly because it's three chapters and it'll take too long, but because of our mixed congregation here, it's not appropriate for us to read out all the R-rated detail. Uh, so I'm gonna, we're going to read some of it. I'm going to summarize some of it in a hopefully non-R-rated way so you understand what's happening without the graphic detail. Uh, and it still helps us to understand what's going on here. Okay, so it starts with one man. Let's have a look. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite, one man. One man who, a Levite, there was their special role to be the priests. They were set apart to look after the tabernacle, the tent where God revealed himself and dwelt with his presence among the people. Special privileged role of spiritual leadership within the nation. Now this Levite, who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. One man, one family, and already there's problems, isn't there? He's got a concubine, which isn't ideal to start with. A concubine, uh, in this sense, not meaning sometimes what we think of as a sex slave, but a concubine meaning a, a wife who's possibly a second wife or a third wife, or potentially a wife whose uh, father wasn't able to provide the dowry and so doesn't have the full status of wife, but is in a similar arrangement. It's a still a permanent uh, arrangement uh, of being married and being uh, having a husband who's responsible for her welfare, to look after her, to provide for her. But she's been unfaithful. We're not told much details about her. We're told she's unfaithful. Whether that means she was committing adultery, probably not as, as severe as that. It's probably that she has abandoned him. She hasn't been faithful to staying and being his uh, wife. Instead, uh, she has left and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she'd been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days eating and drinking and sleeping there. There's the problem, there's unfaithfulness, there's, there's something wrong in this family situation. Uh, and as we go on, we see, as we see more of the character of this Levite, it's clear that he is not an appropriate husband to this woman, that he hasn't served her and loved her as a husband should, that he is harsh and brutal in his dealings with her, uh, that it doesn't say explicitly here, but it's describing a situation of domestic abuse. 
uh, it's clear that the relationship between these two is not a godly relationship. Now, this is just the start of what happens in these chapters. It starts with this man and his abusive relationship with his wife. Um, And we know, we've heard the statistics in in the news, in the media, how much of a problem domestic abuse is in our own society, that it is rampant and it's hidden because it's behind closed doors where people use whatever power they have not to serve and to and to to work for the good of the other but for themselves to control to manipulate whether that be the physical power of size and force it's expressed in physical abuse or whether that is emotional abuse through name-calling and belittling and just being manipulative, whether it's financial or combinations of all and other, it is a terrible, a terrible perversion of the godly relationship between a husband and wife that God designed and that God desires for us. Uh, It's a problem in our society uh, we need to be conscious of. And it's not just a problem in our society out there. Statistics show that it's just equally a problem within Christian churches as it is within the general public. Uh, It's a problem that we need to be very clear in saying it's not acceptable. It's not okay to abuse other people, especially not your own family members, members of your household. But it's a problem that we know God is aware of. Sometimes when we experience the difficulties, the the most painful parts of life, sometimes it's easy to to, for questions to come up and we think, does God really know what's going on here? And people throw out accusations like, if God was really in control, surely he wouldn't allow these kind of things to happen. Now, God's sovereignty and the problem of evil in the world is a big question that I don't want to go into fully now, but what we see here in Judges, if described in the Bible, is some of the blackest Descriptions of sin. God knows the heinous nature of sin. He knows how much of a problem it is. He knows how much suffering it causes. And he doesn't approve it just because it's written here in the Bible as we go on and read more of it. Just because it's detailed here, don't, don't be mistaken in thinking that, well, it's justifiable. God somehow condones it just because it's recorded. Most of the Bible is recording the sinfulness of humanity. It's not something that God approves. 
And let me tell you, if you know people who are suffering in the situation of being abused within their household, whether it's husbands and wives or parents and children or children and parents, there's lots of different shapes it can take. Uh, Please know that we as the church are here not not to dismiss suffering that's happened, not to kind of say it's okay because parents or husbands are to have authority in the family. There's no excuse for people being abused. We here as the church are here to support and to love and to care for people as they are experiencing whatever aspect of sin and suffering and to do whatever we can to protect them. Israel on this point falls down. They don't protect this family. What starts with one family, the husband goes back to the father-in-law. The father-in-law gives back his daughter, sends her away after some kind of competitive hospitality uh, kind of things going on, which is an interesting thing in itself, but we won't talk about that now. Uh, It's kind of he gets stuck, he gets stuck there, and eventually he tears himself away from the father-in-law's over-exuberant hospitality, and he takes the, the concubine, and they go. And they travel, and to head back to their home in the hill country of Ephraim. But on the way, it's more than, it's a multi-day trip. And on the way, they need to spend the night. They've left too late in the morning, or probably the afternoon. And what do they do? Well, let's keep reading a bit, a bit more. Uh, from verse 11. And when they were near Jebus, which is the old name for Jerusalem before it was conquered by King David and the previous inhabitants finally driven out. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramach and spend the night in one of those places. See, he's worried about, he doesn't want to go and stay with foreigners. He's going to stay with his own people, the Israelites, in one of the Israelite towns. So they went on and as the sun set, the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. And they went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. You know, these travelers, they're vulnerable. They go out hoping for hospitality from their fellow Israelites. They're sitting in the square, but no one takes them in. What protection is going to be provided for them? What intervention to stop abuse? Well, an old man finally comes up and he says to them, You're welcome at my house. Let me supply with whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. He's worried. It's dangerous to be out in the square of this Israelite town. Why is it dangerous? It's because people in this town of Gibeah, 
can't be trusted to look out for those who are weak and vulnerable, those who don't have shelter. They can't be trusted to provide what's needed to serve. No, just the opposite. So the abusive situation we see in one family, we see amplified here in a whole town. Gibeah is a town full of abusers. Yeah, so the man says, let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and he fed his donkeys. After they'd washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. Now, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Israelite people, God's chosen people in this town. What hospitality do they want to show to these strangers? They want to use and abuse them. They want to exercise their corrupt desires to fulfill their lusts of the flesh. If you think it sounds familiar, you're right. It's very similar to what happens when angels came to visit Lot in Sodom. Now, there's this demands on, on the man of the house and expecting him to hand over his guests. What twisted hospitality they expect him to, to show. Now, if you think this is bad enough, here's where it gets messy. The man instead wants to send out his daughters, his daughter and the concubine. That doesn't go down so well. That's not what the townspeople want. Eventually, the concubine gets sent outside. And she is the one who bears the brunt of the town's abuse. We read the consequences. No? Thank you, Kate. We can see the consequences in, in verse 27. Don't have it on the slides, I'm sorry. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door, he stepped out to continue on his way. There lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, see his, how much care he shows, get up. Let's go. But there was no answer. The man put her on his donkey and set out for home. We're later told that she has died. It's a shocking and atrocious incident in the history of God's people, isn't it? What's happening here? Well, what, what should have been a holy people that God had specially chosen and set apart to live distinct from the nations and to be a light for them and to bear his name not in vain, to be called the people of Yahweh. 
but they treat it like it's nothing. They pursue the ways of the nations around. And not just that, the worst of the ways. The things that God has specifically judged in the city of Sodom. And fire rained down from heaven to destroy that city. But here being repeated by his own chosen people. We're getting a picture of a family and a nation, oh, sorry, and a city that is just morally bankrupt, aren't they? And as we continue to read, we see it, it doesn't stop with one town. It expands to the whole tribe. When news of this gets out, and you can read, go back and read it later to see how it happens, how the news is spread, uh, the news is spread throughout the nation of Israel. And what happens? The, the, the fighting men get together. Have a look in verse 20, verse 8. There we go. All of the men rose up together as one saying, none of us will go home. Not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it in order decided by casting lots. We'll take 10 men out of every 100 from all the tribes of Israel and 100 from 1,000 and 1,000 from 10,000 to get provisions for the army. And then when the army arrives at Gibeah in Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. There is anger rightly expressed by the wider people of Israel. They are horrified that this is going on. What do they decide to do? Let's go and sort out this town. It makes sense. And it was provided for under the, under the law that lawbreakers needed to be held to account. There's an appropriateness to what they do here. Uh, it seems a bit out of proportion as they've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers to just take out one kind of town, probably had maybe 1,000 people in it. Oh, let's keep reading. So the Israelites got together and they united as one against the city. The tribes of Israel sent messages throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Gibeah is part of Benjamin. So they send to the rest of Benjamin, what are you going to do about it? This is your backyard. You should be on the front line of dealing with it. What are they going to do? They say, now turn over those wicked men of Gibeah to us that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. What are they going to do? They're not going to prosecute the crimes that have been committed, the people who are guilty? No, they're going to defend them. This tribe of Benjamin will fight against those who are trying to do justice to them. What do we see happening? We see then two armies being drawn together. And we see Israel at civil war. Eleven tribes fighting one tribe. And it's a multi-day battle. You can read the details. First of all, the first two days, Benjamin, the smaller one, seems to be winning and causing huge casualties for the others. And then finally, on the third day, the Lord gives Benjamin into their hands and the 11 tribes 
prevailed. Which is ugly, isn't it? God's chosen people who he set apart to be a light to the Gentiles are too busy fighting each other in a civil war. But what comes next is even worse. See, when the victory is won, what do the Israelites do? Well, they sort out Gibeah, which is expected. But then what do they do? Let's read the summary. Oh, no, Benjamin's mobilized. Here we go. Here's the summary. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters, but 600 of them turned and fled to the wilderness, to the rock of Rimon, where they stayed four months. Their army has been slaughtered. There's only 600 of them left, 600 fighting men. What about the rest of the tribe, the rest of Benjamin? And here's where Israel goes way off track. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. The Israelite army, in their zealousness against this crime of Gibeah, in their frustration and wrath against the tribe of Benjamin who are defending him, what do they do? They destroy all the towns of this tribe. They kill all the people, the non-fighting age men, the women and children, even the animals. And they raise the towns to the ground with fire. Here, they extend themselves way beyond just prosecuting the crime. It's not just they fight the war and when the war is won so that they are allowed to go forward and sort it out. No, they go way beyond that. They, here in enacting the sacred ban, what God had commanded them to do to the idolatrous nations that he was punishing in the land, here they direct that same action towards God's own people. They're brothers of the tribe of Benjamin. They take God's judgment into their own hands. Of course, the way sin works is it spirals, doesn't it? It starts with one family and then we see amplified in one town is now expressed by a whole nation, not seeking to live under God and do things according to his way, but doing what is right in their own eyes. And this causes more problems. There's 600 men, was it 600 or 700 men of Benjamin left? And that's it. And there's this, what are they going to do going forward? They've got no towns, they've got no families. Is this going to be the end of the tribe of Benjamin? The men of the rest of Israel have all sworn an oath that none of them will give their daughters to marry a Benjaminite. So how are they going to get children? How are they going to get the next generation? Well, this, this problem and the rest of the chapter of chapter 21 describes how they overcome this. Do they turn to the Lord and see this is a problem that we can't solve? 
we've made our oath. What, what's your solution? Can you miraculously provide? Because we can't do it in our own strength. Do we need to go back on our word that was made hastily and rashly? Because it's a better outcome? No, what do they do? They hatch up a horrific plan that involves kidnapping child brides for from, again, from within other tribes of Israel. That's their kind of way to settle things. This is the good way forward. When we had the better or worse row and Israel was up closest to Jesus, maybe we got that round the wrong way. Maybe they should have been down closer to the Stalin end. They seem to act in similar ways. They're willing to shed life so wantonly. So what we see here in the nation of Israel is the outworking of sin, isn't it? Sin isn't just a problem that kind of is a little part of us. Sin is a problem that goes right to the core. It's what we call total depravity, doctrine of total depravity. That sin has corrupted every part of human life. Uh, some great quotes. Uh, first of all, from Kabat. Uh, great theologian, there was no relic or core of goodness which persists in man in spite of his sin. Sin gets everywhere, affects every part of us. As Herman Baving says, sin holds sway over the whole person, over the mind and will, the heart and conscience, soul and body, over all one's capacities and powers. Sin, since Adam and Eve in the garden, has affected every part of human existence. Now, it's not to say that humans never do anything that's good. We're not, uh, that everything is as bad as it could be all the time. That's not what it means. It means that there is no part of our life that is untainted by sin, that is not affected by that bent away from God's way towards our own rebellious way. And when, when God's common graces are removed, his graces of family constraint, of discipline to teach us what is right, constraint of government with laws that punish the wrongdoer, fear of others, even our own conscience, when it has become corrupted so it's not able to lead us in right. When, when these common graces are stayed, the natural progression of humanity is spiraling into evil. And this is something that is true for all people, even God's chosen people, Israel, the people he set apart. They are totally depraved. And so are we. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, 
here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The Apostle Paul recognised himself that he was totally depraved. Now, he had committed some atrocious things in his life, but he, he's not in the same category as the people in these chapters of Judges. Everything he did, he was seeking to do what God wanted, even though he got it wrong. John Bunyan, the author who his face we had up here earlier, you know, he, he wrote a biography of his life, an autobiography. You know what he called it? Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. He recognized this. He recognized in himself that he was totally depraved, that sin affected every part of his life and made him utterly offensive to God. That his natural bent in all circumstances was to go away from God, to oppose God. That he wasn't able to do anything to save himself from this position. It's only by God's grace. He's abounding grace. If you would ask me where my face should belong, it shouldn't be anywhere resembling close to Jesus. In fact, you should take it as far away from Jesus as you can. Because that's the reality of me as a sinner. That there is nothing in me that is good. Nothing naturally that I can point to. Anything good that I do is the work of God through his grace in me. Opposing my tendency to sin. Now, we could unpack a lot about how the Holy Spirit does this and what it means for us in the life of Christians uh, to work against our totally depraved nature, but that's, that's more than this sermon's got time for. And what we need, to, we need to get this in our heads and understand that human nature is totally depraved. We're not born good. We're not naturally good and just mess up in a few bits and we have this residual goodness. Sin affects us totally. And because of that, we are powerless to save ourselves. It doesn't always look in your life like the atrocious things we see in Judges. I appreciate that. But at the heart, that's where, that's where we're off course, isn't it? You may have heard the saying, there but for the grace of God go I. When we read this, when we read these atrocious things in Judges, that's the attitude we ought to have. To recognize the problem of our depraved nature is the same problem they have and it's being expressed here. But for the grace of God, that's where we would go to. Spiraling down and down into wickedness. Uh, Paul, when he writes to the church in, in Rome, he reminds them of this. You therefore have no excuse, you who parch judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things 
Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on another and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? He wants them to be real about their own sin, not just see sin in others. What hope is there for people who are totally corrupt? Well, Paul mentions it briefly. Well, he doesn't mention it briefly. He unpacks it a lot. But I'm going to just get a couple of verses from Romans 3. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Israel in Judges, we see, had a problem. A problem that the writer sums up in the bookends by saying they had no king. The writer, through whatever divine inspiration he's got, he's got a hint of the solution. They need a king, just as we need a king. We need a king who, like the judges throughout the book, will deliver us from the consequences of our sin. And that king is Jesus, isn't it? It's through his blood that our sin can be atoned for if we receive it by faith. It's through him alone that we, as people who are totally depraved, can be counted righteous, can be justified in God's sight. If the book of Judges reminds us of nothing else, it shouldn't remind us about how bad those Israelites were back then. It should remind us of the, how big the problem of human sin is. That's important. Because the bigger we grasp the problem, the better our grasp of the big problem, the bigness of the problem is. The better our grasp of the bigness of God's salvation in Jesus will be. The blacker we see our sin, the more scintillating we will see our sin.